This is David Mamet, and you're listening to Five Questions with Dan Shaw Bell. You're listening to the Five Questions podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Shaw Bell. In fewer than 10 minutes, my goal is to extract the best advice from the world's smartest and most interesting people by asking them just five questions. My guest today is playwright and filmmaker David Mamet. David won a Pulitzer Prize and received Tony nominations for his plays Glengarry Glenn Ross and Speed the Plow. He wrote the screenplays for such films as The Verdict, The Untouchables, Ronin, and Wag the Dog. We talk about his early influences and career challenges during this episode. David, welcome to Five Questions. Thank you. Well, so happy to have you here. Can you share some of your early influences that shaped your interest in writing and drama? Yes, my earliest influences were two things which I realized at about age 15 and 16 were the same thing. Actually, three things. One of them was Pinter, the plays of Pinter, because he very, very early on wrote some things called Review Sketches and A Night Out, which were about seven to ten minute long comedo serio pieces. And I recognized them because as a kid, I used to work at Second City in Chicago. And I saw the guys, the women doing all these serial comedic sketches. And I was very impressed by them. I realized Pinter was doing the same thing. And then I read Chekhov. And I realized that Chekhov was doing the same thing. That his plays actually don't have a plot. They have a setting. They're connected sentimentally. And we can accept that these are people in life and isn't life just like that. But they're sad and funny at the same time. So those were my earliest influences. Prior to that, I'd I'd been exposed to Eugene O'Neill and I just didn't understand it. And everything that was passing for the American theater at that time bored me to tears. But then I discovered this new thing and I said, well, hell, I I love that. I'm going to try to do that. So I did. Yeah. And that's how you stood out. But I I think what I noticed, and you know, I've interviewed over 3000 successful people at this point, cut across all industries, early exposure, just like you had to the arts, let's say, can make a huge difference in terms of what you like, you decide what you like, what you don't like, how to kind of stand out. And that that can really uh, kind of surface as, as you continue to pursue a career. What motivated your transition from studying acting to becoming a playwright, and how did this shift impact your creative process? Well, I couldn't act, but I loved the theater, and that's all where the pretty girls were. So in both of those cons, I just wasn't leaving. So I decided if I want to be where the pretty girls are, where all the fun is, and doing something that I love, what is it about the theater that I love? that I can do. And what I realized, the very thing which debarred me from being an actor perhaps would empower me to become a director. And that was taking an overview of the entire process. Because when an actor does that, the performance is no good. They don't have to take an overview. They have to get up there and gut it out and have courage and talent. So those were the two things which which influenced me. It's good self-awareness, too, to realize what you like to do. And yeah. kind of pay attention to that and lean in to that type of career, knowing that, you know, trying to do both would be very challenging, if not impossible or not smart to do in the first place, like you just mentioned. How is being fired from dozens of movies a blessing in disguise? And what do you learn from the experiences? Well, getting fired from movies is not really a blessing in disguise. It was, it was failing in the theater is essential for learning how to write a play because it's not getting fired. It's getting dismissed, which is very something very different indeed. You get fired by someone who's a superior, and you get fired for a lot of reasons. But if you're unappreciated by the audience, it means you did something they didn't appreciate. They have an absolute right to do. It's not their job to understand. It's your job to entertain them. And if you can't entertain them, 
If they lose their concentration or they wander away or they go to sleep, you've just failed. So that's where you learn, wait a second, I've made a mistake here. What's the mistake and how do I fix it next time? That's where you learn to write a play. And it's also where you learn to write a movie. And if you can't sit with an audience and watch what they're responding to, you can't learn. So most of the people who come into the, they call it the industry now, on an industrial model, which is to say they're underlings working for bureaucrats. That's what an industry is. But they aren't actually exposed to the experience of watching the people who are the actual recipients of their work, which is the audience. And knowing your audience is very important for crafting something that's going to emotionally connect. Well, you don't have to actually know the audience because the audiences are all alike. They all want to hear a story. The dramatist doesn't actually craft his work for that audience. He crafts his work for an audience, which they're all the same. They all want to hear a story. That's all. And then it's how you tell that story in an entertaining way. Yeah, because if you can't, you can't say, wait a second, let me explain something to you, which most movies do and what most plays do now. They stop and say, let me explain, let me tell you why I'm telling you all this. Or they narrate. The reason I'm telling you this is when I was the head of gynecology at the other hospital that happened before this movie, everybody goes to sleep. So if you're in a theater watching your play or movie, you realize that's where they went to sleep. Oops. If you're, you're, you're writing for a superior, the superior says, oh, good, good, good. But this will help them understand, right? Absolutely. And a lot of people complain that making a movie, making any anything from an art standpoint is very, very difficult. What do you think are the biggest challenges in making a, a film and how did you overcome them? Biggest challenges in making a film are putting up with the idiots who call themselves producers and call themselves studio executives and agents and writers, because these people are all middle. They don't do anything. It's like a a sea captain. You're the sea captain, and you're taking advice from the barnacles. That's the challenge. Everything else was hype. Everything else was uh, and is a joy. It's wonderful. Doing the work by yourself and getting to do it again with the cast and getting to do it again with the editor and doing it for the audience. It's it's just marvelous. It's the corporate types that, that are challenging, the barnacles. Yeah, they're very challenging, but that's the way that that the business is, especially in movie business. And it was always like that, but it's gotten vastly more like that with the death of the studio system and the death of bricks and mortar theaters. But okay, life is like that. Could have been the world's greatest uh, railroad conductor, but the railroads failed. What am I going to do? Go wee, wee, wee all the way home? And what's your best piece of career advice? My best career advice is to stop waiting. If you want to go into the theater... Do it, because you have two choices. You can try to go to an acting school or go to a film prop, which is an absolute waste of time. It's just a fraud. You're not going to learn anything. Or you can say, you know what? Hell, I got a garage. I'll put it on in the garage, just like Judy Garland did, and just like I did, just like Second City did, and just like Chekhov did. I'll put it on the garage. See if people come. Oh, if they come, maybe you put it on in a bigger garage. If one really loves being in the theater, do what you love. Put on a stupid fucking play rather than going around looking for people who are going to accept you. Because in a very, very long career, if you're keeping your eyes open, you can see there's always somebody that you wish to encounter who's going to say, I understand you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to put everything I have in back of your work. But you're never going to meet that person. But what you have to do is become that person, period. 
So that's how you do a play. And it's actually the same way you do a movie because the same device that we're using right now, a movie that you can make on this device is really not in any way inferior to a movie you can make for $150 million and a bunch and a huge cast and blah, blah, blah. It's just not. There's no magic to it. There's a camera, there's actors, and there's an idea. So if you've got a camera, everyone has one called an iPhone, and you have an idea, get a couple of actors and make a movie. Download it and see if anybody likes it. If you do that for four years and you're actually good at it and you get better at it, you're probably going to find an audience. But if you go to film school for four years and then dress up and audition and try to get into other people's offices, you do that for four years, your four years in school have accomplished nothing, and you may spend the rest of your life trying to get some idiot to say, oh, I think you have talent, please go to bed with me. Because if you think about it, why should someone believe in you more than you believe in yourself? Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, David. To follow his journey, you can read his book, Everywhere in Oink Oink. To watch the full extended video version of this episode, go to youtube.com slash Dan And please remember to rate and review the Five Questions podcast on iTunes. <laughs>